Songs and Tales, a podcast where we delve too greedily and too deep into the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. I am Clara. And I'm Aaron. And this week, we are the fighting uruk who will lead you on an endless chase. <laughs> That's this right. We're not guiding you on a journey of- anymore. No, 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 no. We've captured your friends and uh, we're running we're running. the sun <laughs> in, in daylight. Broad daylight. But yeah, we are back. It's been a donkey's age since we last yeah. recorded. We apologize, kind of. For I the apologize long... for nothing. <laughs> yeah, only like semi-apologize <laughs> for the long break. We uh, had some big life happenings happening mm-hmm. and... Um... Long story short, Aaron now lives in my house, and I live in another house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we uh, uh, we both moved. That's right. I'm now recording where Clara used to record. And I am recording in a new place. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> so speaking of Boromir getting his bean freaked this week... Clara's getting her bean freaked. Yeah, my bean is freaked. I don't know what I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> um, but we are thrilled to be back. It, it probably ha- it's been like a month, right? I didn't even it's look. Been, I didn't, yeah, it's been about I, over okay. a month, I think. We. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it was July twentieth when we last. Yeah, published. we we certainly did not intend to take this no. long of a break, but sometimes life happens, and uh, mm-hmm. you have to, you know, tend to that. Life is what you make it. That's, <laughs> that's one way to put it, sure. Um, but it worked out well because we are moving to a new book, at least. Yes, so, we are. Uh, um, the Two Towers. That's we finally correct. made it, folks. We made it to book two. We are both thrilled. Erin, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is our favorite book. Yes. Both of us. Yeah. It was mine. When I last read it, as a younger person, and I suspect it will be again. Yes. I uh, Usually the second book in a trilogy for me is always a bit of a letdown. It feels mm-hmm. like a bit of a bridge. Mm-hmm. The Two Towers certainly is a bridge, but it also like holds up on its own better than most second books in trilogies for me. I would agree. It has uh, some of the more interesting things happening in it. Yeah. Uh, we finally meet the writers of Rohan, who are a favorite. Yes, very cool, very cool blonde dudes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very blonde and very tall. Surprise, surprise. Yes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the pacing is much quicker. There's just more like happening. Yeah. Uh, in the in this book uh, than the previous one. So even though these first three chapters are long. Yeah, it's like fifty some pages for yeah, the first. Yeah, the first three chapters are really, really, really mm-hmm. long. Uh, I listened. I listened to them as my refresher this morning on a run, and I, well, I was running while listening to a lot about <laughs> running. <laughs> That's true. There's a lot of uh, running in this these chapters. <laughs> and uh, I ran for about an hour and forty minutes and did not get through all three chapters. If that tells you anything, mm-hmm. so <laughs> yeah. Well, the Pippin uh, chapter is longer than I remembered. It's like that one alone is like 25 pages. Yes. And the Riders uh, of Rohan is also really long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The only short one is the, the first yes, chapter. Departure which is of Boromir. Departure of Boromir. Yeah. So if that doesn't tell you where we start off on a real happy note, 
uh, Boromir doesn't depart alive, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. At the very beginning of this book, like at the very end of the first movie, Boromir dies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so do you want to just start there? Start yeah. where we start and uh, yeah. go from there? <laughs> Begin from the beginning, yes. Uh, yeah, why don't we talk about his departure? Sure. Um, I actually really like this chapter a lot. Mm-hmm. More than I, I, I didn't remember much of it, but reading it again, um, I really like, I really like how the how the scene plays out um, between him, you know Boromir and Aragorn, um, mm-hmm. and also then the the way they quote unquote bury him um, mm-hmm. at the end. So I have some thoughts about it, but yeah, I don't know if you had anything you wanted to lead with here. No, share away. We'll start with start with sure. what you have. Uh, okay, so couple things. I think uh, the thing that I was drawn to is uh, how much Tolkien builds up the grandeur mm-hmm. of this moment. Uh, you know, we have the falls, the waterfall. Uh, we have, you know, the first sight we have of Boromir in this chapter is he's laying under a tree as if he's resting. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, Aragorn then notices, right, that he's full of arrows. Um, so we have this kind of um, romantic and sublime imagery throughout Mm-hmm. Uh, that I think plays into what we see at a couple points in this chapter. And then I think in the next um, where Boromir is sort of forgiven for what he's mm-hmm. done, both in the story itself, but also like textually uh, in the way he's portrayed, you know, Aragorn keeps his, his betrayal secret mm-hmm. from the others. Um, Boromir says, I have paid at one, you know, that's like mm-hmm. one of his last words. So this idea that he's he's sort of atoned for what he's done, and mm-hmm. um, he's restored to this uh, position of greatness, um, where sort of his his failings are forgiven and forgotten, mm-hmm. and he becomes you know the steward of Gondor once again, um, and he gets this appropriately royal send off um, at the end. So I don't know. I I really like how this is structured um, in a way that both as spoken by Aragorn, but also as the, the descriptions give us, we see sort of Boromir's reascension um, to his prior status, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Can you explain to our listeners what you mean when you talk about mm. the sublime? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so I'm not talking about Kant's version of the sublime. <laughs> Okay. Uh, which is, is this idea that like beauty distracts from rationality. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm talking about it more in the like the romantic sense of like Keats and, and mm-hmm. the others who use it um, in romantic poetry, but also in novels too. This idea that the the sort of beauty of the of the world around you um, reflects all these things, like all these different forms of greatness, whether it's ethical, intellectual, moral. Mm-hmm. Um, feeling like all of these things are elevated by the natural world and it reflects that those elevated feelings and ethics and stature that's within mm-hmm. people as well sort of in this mutual I don't know like it's very much about like going out and you know communing with nature I guess to be a little granola about it <laughs> um, but it's this idea right that like the natural world expresses the sort of um, greatness of I know I'm looking for the right word, but mm-hmm. yeah, this just idea that like you can find these things in nature. If you sort of look at it, it mm-hmm. reflects these things for us. 
and it's often in sort of these spectacular landscapes that we see yeah. represented. And, mm-hmm. and here we definitely have that with the falls mm-hmm. um, and, you know, and putting him in the, in the boat. Um, there's descriptions of him too, that I think are highly romantic in this section. You know, he's given the belt back, his mm-hmm. hair is combed, like he's cleaned mm-hmm. up. Uh, <laughs> and of course, like Aragorn kisses him on the forehead, right? Yeah. Um, so there's this very kind of high romanticism throughout yeah. here that to me, you know, it's sort of like this reflected glory, I guess is another way of thinking how the sublime works here. Mm-hmm. Um, like the glory of the world around them in this moment reflects on Boromir, but also on the company as mm-hmm. a whole. Um, because it is this kind of slower moment right before we get into this steeplechase yeah. <laughs> that we're about to have in the next section. Um, so it is kind of this last lingering moment of like, I don't know if I want to say peace exactly, but mm-hmm. the pacing's different here. Yeah. Too. I feel like I'm rambling about the sublime, but... <laughs> I don't think you're rambling about the sublime. You might be rambling, but... Oh, thank you. <laughs> No, but I know what you mean. This feels very like, like, I don't know. uh, I mean, Tennyson is was not Mm -hmm. a romantic, right? But this feels very like, I mean, I think I'm I'm really (laughs) zeroing in on Boromir floating away on his Mm -hmm. boat, like the Lady of Shalott. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And Mm -hmm. that moment comes up later when, uh, spoiler alert, Faramir talks about coming across Boromir, like a vision right. of Boromir floating past, uh, mm-hmm. which very much recalls uh, the Lady of Shalott, but just sort of this, like, it feels very romantic, like like the romantics meeting Arthur, like Arthurian mm-hmm. legend, right? Because mm-hmm. we sort of also have this vision of this like chivalric relationship between Boromir and Aragorn that mm-hmm. I don't think we've quite seen before. Um, especially with his like kiss on his brow as he's dying is very something that like we would see in Arthurian legend um, at like through kind of various tellings of whatever stories they're like several um, kisses between like Lord and I would say like a squire yeah (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. in Sir Gowan Mm -hmm. and the Green Knight and in other texts Um, so it is very kind of it almost feels like, yeah, like you said, this like peaceful moment that seems sort of removed from the rest mm-hmm. of these chapters, um, both sort of by virtue of what's happening, but also kind of how the subject matter is approached. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very interesting to compare this with the Gandalf, quote unquote, post death sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, right, which know, is like they're so given very little time. Again. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is interesting that with the stakes still as high, I feel like mm-hmm. um, Tolkien does give us pause here for this sequence. Um, and, and I'm not sure. I mean, I think I know why he's doing it, but it is interesting that. You know, we're getting a full morning sequence here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, why um, do you uh, think he's doing it? I think it's because it's part of 
again, like restoring Boromir as a character. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, that to, by showing this full honors that he's getting, mm-hmm. um, it's a way of, again, signaling that he he has, quote unquote, paid for what he did. Like it, it emphasizes the heroism of his final action. Mm-hmm. Too. And also, of course, the actions that we haven't seen, but we've heard about, um, which you hear about in the next chapter when I think it's Aomer says, we, you know, we heard about Boromir. He's been fighting on the East for years, right? He's mm-hmm. been fighting these endless wars in the East for years. So we get this sense of him as as who he really is. And, and it suggests, too, that the ring corrupted him, right? Mm-hmm. That, that that was a, a deviation from his typical behavior as yes, a person. Yes, like... Uh... Like, we didn't know, we, the reader, didn't right. quite know Boromir at his best. Right. Which I think until is a real shame until the very end, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it is interesting that the contrast between he and Aragorn, even on, like, a language level. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, and I think Shippy maybe mentions this at some point, but um, <laughs> they speak differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aragorn is more modern-sounding. In his language, mm-hmm. I think, than Boromir, who's very much like this kind of lofty, <laughs> um, yeah, lofty or older sounding way of speaking. Yeah, which is, um, interesting, which is interesting because mm-hmm. you'd think it'd be the other way around. Right. right. Yeah. Um, but but he's... I also think, right, Aragorn is supposed to be this sort of like man of the people, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know. And Boromir obviously is like raised and right. Or Aragorn wasn't, I mean, he was raised among the elves, but he's lived for years just like as a wanderer. Whereas Boromir is, you know, he's a, he's the son of the steward of God, or like he's Mm -hmm. as good as a prince and has like lived that his whole life. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, I have a hard time picturing Boromir and the prancing pony fitting in very well. Right. Whereas Aragorn can kind of vanish into the background mm-hmm. um, in that sequence. And I think we talked about sort of Henry, Henry the fourth when we way back mm-hmm. when we talked about the prancing pony, but it's the same yes. idea, right? As you said, like Aragorn has been raised to be a king, but he's also been around the commoner. Right. Um, commoners I, for so long. Right. Which I think is a, a point of Tolkien's right of like, this is a, this is something mm-hmm. that, a king must do right mm-hmm. is like exactly. understand the people that he's serving right um right. which makes aragorn right just like emphasizes aragorn's worthiness to be king mm-hmm. and take over from the stewards who maybe right. don't quite understand the people anymore mm-hmm. yeah like we get and the we'll sense that that... Mirrors. oh sorry go ahead go ahead go ahead I was just going to say, we the thing that we see about Boromir's leadership is that he's a fighter. That's his mm-hmm. primary mm-hmm. talent, <laughs> um, is that he knows how to fight. And it seems inspire people to fight. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's not, yeah, we don't get a sense of him relating to the people he's actually ruling right. beyond and that. We'll, and, and we'll see that, too, much more drastically with Denethor. Yes, in, yeah. In, in the return of the king and his kind of you know, slow slip into madness mm-hmm. uh, because he's like completely removed himself and now just likes to stare into his palantir. <laughs> yeah, he's obsessed. Um, so, you know, I think it's just further, like furthering Tolkien's sort of cause of 
mm-hmm. highlighting why Aragorn is meant to be king mm-hmm. and like how worthy he is despite his own self-doubt in these sections. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he frequently says all my choices have gone amiss. Yeah, he is like not <laughs> pleased. He's like <laughs> no. He's like me when I ask Joe what he wants uh for dinner and he's like what do you want for dinner? And I'm like <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I'm asking you. And Aragorn is like, where should we go? And Gimli's like, where do you want to go? <laughs> and Aragorn's like, fuck. Yep. Forced to choose. <laughs> Let this cup pass from me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is. It, it really is a lot of that in this, uh, in this section. Because, yeah, uh, yeah, he blames himself for Boromir's death, I think. And he also blames himself for losing the hobbits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. He blames himself for everything. Uh, and yeah, he's saying, you know, ever since Gandalf left, he's had to make all the choices and he doesn't see them as being resulting in them right. in good but, things. And they're, and, they're, and they're hard choices to make. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't blame uh, Aragorn for maybe being a little, you know, frustrated at this point. No. no. Um, do you think, not. you know, I think ultimately they make the right choice in choosing mm-hmm. to follow the the hobbits, uh, Merry and Pippin, yeah. as opposed to following Frodo and Sam. Now, of mm-hmm. course, we can say that because we know how the end of this book plays out. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, but it is, again, sort of, I think we talked about this last time, like, could he have, mm-hmm. and, you know, Legolas really have, like, just, you know, walked into Mordor without detection? Right. Um, uh, yeah. I, I don't I, think, I think any of not. them could have. Yeah. You know, maybe Gimli, just because he's a dwarf and mm. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's because yeah, I think even Aragorn would have set off alarms. <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, the especially uh, security the sword. system. <laughs> yeah, the sword that's been reforged around. The the Brinks um, home security system of Mordor would have started beeping. <laughs> this is Sauron for Simply Safe. Do you need to protect your borders? Ring thieves. <laughs> and the flame of the West. <laughs> and the flame of the West, yeah. Um. um no, I mean, absolutely. And like, I think even Aragorn kind of knows at this point that his path does lay elsewhere. Because mm-hmm. uh, he says, you know, Gondor, he, when he's looking at one point towards Gondor, he like exclaims about how wonderful mm-hmm. it is to see. But like, he can't go there just yet. Yeah. Um, so he knows on some level that his his path will end there. Um, so I think he, yeah, he he couldn't like, yeah, he couldn't have gone with them. No, he has to go to Gondor because Gondor is not going to survive without its true king. Right. And like he says, you can't just leave Merry and Pippin to like. (laughs) No. Yeah, they're not going to make it. I mean, they could make it. They do make it on their own, but. But at least he knows that. that, Right. Frodo and Sam haven't been captured, you know. Um, So I think ultimately at the end of this chapter, when they decide to, Mm -hmm. you know hunt down some orcs it's the correct decision yeah i mean it's really the only choice right yeah so the um, riders are on yes my horsey boys 
<laughs> what if uh, now, Clara? What if there was a country of people mm-hmm. who were horse girls, but they were tall men with blonde hair? That's this. That's this. We're here. <laughs> we're here. We've we've reached horse girl country. Yeah, but it's also maybe Poland. Yes, the first to fall. Uh, caught between east and west. Come on. Yep. Mm-hmm. Poor Poland. All sides. Yep. Are the Riders of Rohan just the winged hussars? I mean, is that pretty pretty blonde? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I I also love this chapter. So, um, I have some. I draw I draw some issue with this chapter. I like this chapter, but there's What's some things issues? that okay. yeah. Legolas Legolas is my main issue in this chapter. If I could oh. pull his hair, I would. <laughs> yeah, he's very annoying. He's so annoying. Um, he is absolutely the most annoying. He is like, Gimli's like, I'm tired. And Legolas <laughs> is like, I want to run forever. I'll try to find an exact yeah, example. I think of- I marked, I may have marked that second down. <laughs> oh, it's like all over. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but I think the one you're thinking of maybe is. I don't know. But like he smells the grass and he can run fast. Again. Oh, yes. And he can just like sleepwalk. Yeah, that part I actually marked that because it says he can have like elvish dreams while mm-hmm. he's so he's like having a waking dream. Yes, and it allows him to like rest. Um, and what is an elvish dream? I don't know. It's just a lot of like twinkle lights. I don't know. It's got to be. Um, but yeah, he's a big butthole to Gimli. Yes, who like has little legs and is trying his best. <laughs> but they've been running forever. Yeah, I get really sick of Legolas in this this chapter. Mm-hmm. Like when he counts the exact number of riders. Oh my god, yeah. It's like I'm Rain like, Man. Get, get out of here. Yes, yeah. said Legolas, there are 105. Yellow is their hair. Bright are their spears. <laughs> he does a lot <laughs> the, of showing their leader, off. Their leader is very tall. Aragorn smiled. Keen are the eyes of the elves, he said. Nay, the riders are little more than five leagues distant, said Legolas. Five leagues? <laughs> Yep. I don't know exactly how long a league is, but I, I know, know it's a lot. <laughs> yeah. My God. Does he have like yeah, little Legolas, telescopes in his eyes? Legolas is really, uh, really frustrating to me in this chapter. Mm. He's kind of mean to Gimli at times. <laughs> yeah, he's just like inadvertently mean. He's just like calloused. <laughs> yeah. How like other people get tired. Yes. <laughs> because, you know, they can't live on Lembus and waking dreams. <laughs> Correct. Um, but um, but other than that, it's it's great. It's a great chapter. Yeah. I mean, I love when they meet the right. You know, when they meet Aemir and yeah. I mean, really. Uh, I mean, I feel like we can kind of zip ahead to that portion. But yeah. the beginning of this chapter is just a lot of running and like debating about which direction to run. Yes, they so they're running and running and running. And, you know, Legolas has his telescope eyes on and mm-hmm. Gimli is like, I can run, but I'm tired. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and that's kind of it. You mm-hmm. know, they're uh, try they but they they do really lose a lot of hope in this they section. Do. You know, yes. they start to lose the trail of the orcs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the like right before they meet the riders, they're sort of at a point where they're like, all right, well, we uh, 
can't catch up. Yeah. Right. There's no possible way we're catching yeah. them at this point. Uh, I mean, I think the thing of interest in these early portions of the chapter is the way um, Rohan is described and, you know, the, the green grass looks like a sea. Mm-hmm. The orcs leave this kind of blackened trail mm-hmm. where like everything they touch seems to die and yes. wither. Mm-hmm. Um, we're told repeatedly that they have iron shod feet. Um, yes. So there's that kind of, which we've talked about with Saruman before the, you know, the sort of idea of like the modern world destroying Mm-hmm. <laughs> jolly green england um but so here we're getting that emphasis again i mean we also learned that the orcs are fighting among themselves uh yes. between sauron's orcs and uh the uruk high um or the northern orcs i guess. there's like orcs and goblins there's like all these different yeah groupings. there's like a few factions there's like yeah. orcs that came from moria there's the uruk high right, and then yeah. there's orcs from mordor I think and that's it. I think yeah. they're like three groups. Okay. As best I can tell from like the next chapter when we actually meet yeah. them. Well, he says something about God. They find dead goblins at one point too. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Those, There's like this yeah. grab bag of, and it's confusing because at one point Tolkien referred to orcs and goblins like interchangeably. Correct. I think those are from Moria. The are goblin those the Moria ones? slash okay. orcs. Yeah. Okay. Um, so they're fighting. Um, but but yeah, it's otherwise just a lot of running, a lot of running, and uh, Aragorn like listening to the earth. Yes. <laughs> um. So, but yeah, they get tired. They decide they hear the horses coming, and then you know Legolas braggingly sees them, mm-hmm. and they decide they're just going to sit down and wait for news. At this point, from them because they're mm-hmm. riding back from the direction right, they've been the, chasing. Uh, yeah, up the orc, orc trail. trail. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's an ominous, you know, curl of smoke in the distance. Yes. So. Yeah, so that's kind of that sort of brings us to the middle-ish of the chapter. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a very long chapter. Um, mm-hmm. The first half is all this running, hunting, you know, etc. Second half, we meet the riders of Rohan, mm-hmm. who are very cool. They're very cool. They and their horsies. Mm-hmm. Horsey boys. Um. The Riders of Rohan are Poland. They are also very <laughs> much like uh, the um, Anglo-Saxons. Yes. Yeah, for sure. 100%. Like when we uh, actually end up in Meduseld and like mm-hmm. meet, meet them, it's very, very clear that that is where Tolkien is drawing most of his inspiration yeah. from. They are all very blonde and Nordic. There's like a, I can't remember if it's in this book or in the next one, but there is like a song or poem, of course, mm-hmm. associated with the uh, like people of Rohan. And it is written with like Kennings and, oh, okay. right. So it's like yeah. actually written in the same form of yep. Old English poetry um, gotcha. and song. But I, I think it's in Return of the King. But anyway, so they're very mm-hmm. like, they're very much, you know, England before England. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're told that they don't have a written language. They just sing songs. Yes. Um, yeah, so they're just, like wise yeah. but unlearned is yeah, how yeah. Uh, Aragorn right. describes them. And right. actually, this is like one thing I remember from Shippy, because I don't remember much from Shippy because that book is just bananas. But it's, yeah, it's wild. <laughs> one, one interesting thing I remember him discussing when he has his chapter about the Riders of Rohan is like, 
in so in England when you know the Anglo-Saxons were primarily the inhabitants of the British Isles they did not have horses mm-hmm. but they wrote a lot about having horses <laughs> <laughs> So Tolkien has kind of like taken those two things and married them to create mm-hmm. the writers of Rohan. So they're mm-hmm. very much Anglo-Saxon, but like the Anglo-Saxons having realized their dream of owning Horses. a horse. <laughs> wow. Um, which I think is very interesting. That is very funny. So he's like basing it almost on like the literary versions of, you know, Anglo-Saxons rather than like the realistic you know. Right. So Tolkien's sort of fantasy of the Anglo-Saxons is that they have horses. Mm-hmm, basically. Okay. He's letting so they, them live they, out they their fantasy. Because of the Romans? Is that how they would have had knowledge of horses? I would assume so. Okay. Because they're probably from Spain. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right, because uh, there were no... Is, yeah. They wouldn't native, have had right. horses. No. Yeah. Yeah, there were no native horses. In... Okay. Yeah, that is interesting that he's commingling them because and he it, loves horses so much. That's why. He do, yes, he also loves horses. Uh, he loves trees and horses. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, and we have the world's smartest horse here. Well, it gets mentioned. Shadowfax is. Yeah, smartest horse. Father or whatever who could like who knew language. Yes. Um, so it's like Tolkien is a horse girl. He's like, yep. I wish I had a horse that could talk to me. Yep. Just like he also um, wishes he had a tree that could talk to him. Yeah. He describes Legolas as silent and thoughtful, like a tree, like a young tree. <laughs> yes. Like, okay. Incredible. Yeah. So, but that, that's particular getting a little further. Yeah. Further we're getting field, further afield with the trees. Um, but it is, I mean, I think it does explain why. I don't know. I feel like Tolkien likes Rohan the best. I think so, too. I think he um, has, like, a respect for Gondor, but, like, a love for Rohan. Mm-hmm. And because well, they're cooler. Is, oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> they're way yeah, cooler. Like, Gondor's kind of in decline at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, I mean, our introduction to the writers of Rohan is Aemor saying, you know, we just want to live free without masters. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, no gods, no kinks. That's right. Hell yeah. Um. Yeah, but the whole idea is that they are this sort of free, freer, free roaming people who have like a deep, deeper attachment to nature because of their love of horses. Like Gondor, mm-hmm. we don't get the sense that they have a deep attachment to nature. Like it's a very like urban kingdom in a lot of ways. Like Minas Tirith is huge, right? It's this huge city. Um, whereas Rohan seems much more like, yeah, pastoral mm-hmm. um, and much older. Um, you know, and, and Aragorn makes the point that they are not kin to Gondor. Mm-hmm. We're explicitly right. told that that they're from a separate bloodline of men. Right. Um. So there's this way in which we've talked about this with Tolkien before, but the way that like culture and language and identity all work here. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, the, that we're seeing that Rohan is being signaled as something very different from Gondor. Yeah. Well, then they're like the people who stayed, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's a sense, it, and we've I think we've talked about this before, like, this is silly that <laughs> Tolkien, you know, that Tolkien was like, oh, well, the men of the West came and like taught the poor, sad 
mm-hmm. like illiterates mm-hmm. in Middle Earth how to read and write yeah. and have commerce. But there's a sense that like there's still nobility to these groups. And I think mm-hmm. the writers of Rohan are kind of the pinnacle of that. Yeah. The fact that like they've been here for a long time. They didn't come out of the West. They were here like all through what they call them like the dark years. Right. Um and presumably thrived. They've got their cool horses <laughs> and mm-hmm. like have figured out a way to live for themselves. Um and like I, they're also related to the Bjornings, which if we remember Bjorn from The Hobbit, mm-hmm. he's like that big guy who turns into a bear. bear. Yeah. So <laughs> they're also like, <laughs> you know, you talked about this kind of connection to nature, like they're descendants of like relatives of this guy who literally could embody an animal. So mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there's a closeness to nature that's still there. Yeah, and I think Tolkien really responds to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, you know, again, I'm I'm peeking for it a little in this book. I think when we meet Faramir, it might be interesting to see how he kind of bridges the gap between Rohan mm-hmm. and Gondor mm-hmm. in a way. Um, and like is like this ideal leader, I think, because of that. Okay. Yeah, I don't remember exactly how he's introduced to us, so be curious to see when we get there. Um, but yeah, that, the whole thing with Bjorn is very funny to me, especially because when they mention hobbits, uh, AMR says, oh, are we in the world of children's stories? Like how mm-hmm. these aren't real creatures. Right. <laughs> um, so it's, it's funny that Tolkien seems to be wink, winking towards the hobbit here. Mm-hmm. Pretty directly, um, because the whole encounter between the three and Aemir is this like constant back and forth about legends and myths and children's stories coming to life, which mm-hmm. is very interesting yes. to me. Um, yes. both with the hobbits, but also with you know uh, they talk about Galadriel, and of course mm-hmm. when Aragorn reveals himself as as the heir to the throne. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amor ex- exclaims, "You know what is this? What, how how is it that we're in this place where you know myths and legends just appear out of the ground? Because at first they don't see them because they have those elven, I guess, because they have the elven cloaks on that they've been given. Mm-hmm. Um, so they literally kind of spring out of the ground to their eyes, and then it, it proceeds this whole um, exchange about like myths and legends coming to life, which also feels very Tolkien. Yes, yeah. Right. Do we want to talk about that a little bit? That's it's very interesting. Yes." Because I think, uh, I think it gives us a sense of like what Tolkien's theory of history is, mm-hmm. or idea of what history is. Uh, we get that I a couple agree. points here, um, but this this section in particular, uh, you know, we have Aragorn saying something to the effect of, you know, w- when leaders die, ordinary people have to step up. Um, we have, you know, Amor exclaiming about how legends are coming to life. Um, we get an image of. Aragorn is this kingly figure again, yeah, which like we he have suddenly to, we definitely bursts have forth. To, yes, we have to um, talk about that too. Yeah. I have some thoughts, but let's first talk about <laughs> these legends. Yeah. Um, so obviously, 
this whole th exchange is precipitated by Amor asking their names. There's this kind of brief argumentative exchange. Gimli refuses. It almost mm -hmm. comes to blows, but Aragorn steps in and calms things down. Mm -hmm. He gives his name as Strider first, and mm -hmm. Amor kind of is like, what kind of a name for man is that? <laughs> you know, he says, that's not a man's name, uh, which is funny to me because I'm like, well, what kind of a name is it? <laughs> right. Um and so I, I, some other things happened before then, but then eventually Aragorn, I, I think it's after he's trying to calm down the, mm -hmm. the argument, he reveals himself, right? He shows the mm -hmm. sword that's been reforged. He actually pulls it out and wields it. And he has this like crazy moment where he <laughs> proclaims himself mm -hmm. to be, and it's wild because it, it is one of those moments where he slips into a more uh, lofty language. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, so he says, Aragorn threw back his cloak, the elven sheath glittered as he grasped it and the bright blade of, uh, and, uh, and shone like a sudden flame as he, as he swept it out. Elendil, he cried, I am Aragorn, son of Arathorn, and am called Elisar, the Elfstone, Dunedain, the heir of Isildur, Elendil's son of Gondor. Here is the sword that was broken and is forged again. Will you aid me or thwart me? Choose swiftly. Um, <laughs> And then the next line is Gimli and Legolas looked at their companion in amazement for they had not seen him in this mood before. And I'm like, yeah, it's a mood. All right. Yeah. It's um, the transfiguration. Correct. Yeah. Like this mm -hmm. is what works. If, okay. Mm -hmm. So um, just in case you've missed it, the last 15 other times today has signaled <laughs> that Aragorn is the Messiah. Here it's we Christ, have yeah. the transfiguration happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's quite, I mean, we've seen hints of his transformation before. Yes. But this is flashes, literally, but this uh, is, yeah. Yes, he seemed He's to have grown in stature while Eomir had shrunk, and in his living face they caught a brief mm -hmm. vision of the power and majesty of the kings of stone. For a moment, it mm -hmm. seemed to the eyes of Legolas that a white flame flickered on the brows of Aragorn like a shining crown. Yep. So, so literally the legends come to life. Yes. Right? Like the Numenorians are back. And that is what Eomir immediately says. Dreams and legends yep. spring to life out of the grass. Yep. So all these stories that he's presumably heard mm -hmm. are, are appearing before him quite, you know, literally. And we've talked mm -hmm. about this, I think, both here and maybe in the Silmarillion too, but um, the way that Tolkien blurs myth, legend, and, and history together. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I think there is something here about, yeah, Tolkien's whole view of how history works, which we've talked about quite a bit, but but here it seems to be really obvious what he's saying about, you know, that these old stories are real. They have a reality mm -hmm. to them um, in a way that we normally wouldn't associate. Like to him, right? Like Beowulf is a real thing. Right. I think. Mm -hmm. um, whereas yeah, we would 100%. say, we would say it's a, you know, it's a real text that reveals mm -hmm. certain things about the culture that created it, but we wouldn't say that Beowulf was a real person. Right. Who fought a dragon. You know. <laughs> like we wouldn't say that. But I think Tolkien's saying that there's something in that that is real. Mm -hmm. That is more important than whatever we would disregard as being. You know, to quote Aomer, children's stories. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that there is something valuable and, and true in that. Um, and Aragorn is sort of this embodiment of all these old stories. Right? He's the stone kings come to life. Right, right. He is the legend made 
manifest essentially mm-hmm. like yeah yep. like in it's like inside every legend is a grain of historical fact mm-hmm. i think for tolkien it's more than a grain yeah i think so too but but i think we <laughs> we can mm-hmm. take it as a grain <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah yeah <laughs> more comfortable with that as modern modern readers perhaps sure but... And even if the fact is like, you know, for us knowing about the way a culture interpreted the world, like vis-a-vis how Mm -hmm. its legends are written. Yeah. You can learn a lot about, you know, a group of people and their beliefs and their, you know, ways of making meaning by reading their myths and legends. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's another but, way of understanding how they think. Right, but Tolkien is like beyond goes be a little beyond that. <laughs> it's like it's real. It is real. Um Yeah, it's so it's actually not Amor who says the the line about there's an earlier line about legends too. He says, oh, when they um, talk about the halflings. The halflings, yeah. He says, halflings, but they are only little people in old songs and children's tales of the north. Do we walk in legends or on the green earth in the daylight? Um, and Tolkien, of course, is saying, we walk a in little both. Bit of, yeah, yeah, a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, I actually think there's a lot in this section that kind of sums mm-hmm. up Tolkien's worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, I think... I think we're touching on a portion of it now, the the legends, you know, and how they play into like actual historical, you know, truth for yeah. him. Um, and then also there's this discussion about good and evil. Yes. Yeah. That I think is kind of the other sort of like summation of Tolkien's, how he views the world and also sort of his, his mm-hmm. overall I would say kind of like driving plot device for all of his, his books. Uh, We've talked in the past about like the cycle of evil and how evil is ever present just in different forms and it always must be overcome. And after Mm -hmm. the end of this book, obviously evil is no longer physically present in the world, but you know, going forward in history, (laughs) (laughs) right um you know tolkien has kind of said you know evil is still there it's just not physical Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and um i don't know what page this is on for you this is on page 427 for me but basically aomer is like you know, all the world is strange. Yes. Elf and dwarf are walking in mm-hmm. company. The sword that comes that co- the sword comes back to war that was broken, and the long ages are the father of our fathers rode into the mark. How shall a man judge what to do in such times? Mm-hmm. And Aragorn says, as he ever has judged, good and ill have not changed since yesteryear. Nor are they one thing among elves and dwarves, and another among men. It is a man's part to discern them as much uh, in the golden wood as in his own house. Yeah. Um, And so basically Aragorn is saying good and evil are the same as they've always been, but like, it's up to you to decide. Right. How, like how to align yourself. Right. Um, And you know, 
which way you're aligning yourself when you make that choice too, right. I think, right? Like yes. there's no doubt about which is which. Correct. Yeah. So I think like this one sentence really sums up. Oh, for sure. What t- Tolkien is kind of trying to do with his portrayal mm-hmm. of good and evil mm-hmm. in these books is that they're always, they're always present and always in generally the same forms. Right. Um, good is always good and evil is always evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had asterisked uh, Aragorn's line there and I wrote Tolkien. Because <laughs> it right. seems like it's straight it is, from him. Yeah, straight from um, him. And it's, I think it speaks to Tolkien's whole, as you're saying, his whole worldview, right, is this um, reaction against kind of, uh, I don't know, I guess like the... It's a reaction against sort of the rejection of universalism Mm -hmm. that was happening Mm -hmm. really throughout the 19th and 20th century. But this idea, right, that things are subjective, Mm -hmm. you know, from an individual's perspective, right? Like one person can see something and identify it as good. Another can see it as and identify it as evil. Um, And Tolkien's saying, you know, that no, these things are universally understood. Mm hmm that it's not context it's not really contextual um you know they've always been good or bad and they always will be it doesn't matter where you're standing um or what your individual perception is um mm-hmm. so it's kind of this reaction against like relativity <laughs> um and the whole notion of you know individual like the whole modernist project yeah sort of individualism as being the kind of lens through which you see the world. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So from Freud on down, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) In a lot of ways, like this idea that, yeah, you can, you can interpret however you want. Right. Is, is sort of the, I mean, not totally, but like there's this way in which the modernist project is all about, you know, the world is, is not something you can, that everyone understands equally. Mm-hmm. Um, and Tolkien's saying that actually, no, there are certain things that are consistent. Right. Good and evil um, being the right. most consistent. Correct. Yeah. Um, and it's an interesting, I mean, it's an interesting debate. Yeah. To have, it's clear which side he is on. Yes. But... <laughs> no gray areas for him. Mm hmm. No, we've seen this before, I think, in other instances in the books. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, um, because as we said, like this cycle just continues. So like, of mm-hmm. course, we're going to see it in other instances because this is what's informing the whole. I mean, it's right. what informed the, if we can call it a plot of the Silmarillion at its core, right? You know, this if we can say that the Silmarillion has a plot, <laughs> but right at its core, it's like there's a big, bad, evil, evil person. And... Mm-hmm the little people have to fight right. to overthrow it. And that's the same, you know, mm-hmm. basic plot of Lord of the Rings. And right. there is maybe like a coveted magical object. <laughs> right. right. But I think even without that coveted magical object, like, I think that even without the ring, <laughs> you, would, you could still have the plot of this book. Yeah. Just like without the Silmarils, you could have the plot of the Silmarillion. I think Mm -hmm. the Silmarils and the ring 
just sort of serve the purpose of showing how difficult it can be to resist the temptation of evil. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's a way of showing how evil works right. on people. Right. Um, because I think this conversation relates to what we were saying just a while ago about Boromir as well. Mm-hmm. Like he's a good person. Right. Who we don't see his goodness until the end because mm-hmm. he's been influenced by the ring the whole time. Um, so again, thinking of the question of like, there is defined good and defined evil. What, mm-hmm. what the ring and I, to a lesser extent, what the Silmarils do is they expose the, the way people can move from one side of that division to another, sometimes mm-hmm. without realizing it. Right. Um, but even if they don't realize it, that doesn't excuse the act, action. <laughs> doesn't excuse the choice. Um, in some ways, like just because they fail to to recognize it, doesn't mean that it isn't evil. If right. that makes sense. Um, and often they do recognize it, but usually it's too late, right? Like Boromir recognizes it at the end, mm-hmm. um, like immediately after he's made the choice to confront Frodo, and Frodo rejects him. That's when he recognizes his the wrongness of his action, right? And he slinks back to camp and doesn't say, talk about it. Right. He Won't knows talk what he did this wrong, he's, right? He's guilty. He's guilty about it. So there's this way, right, in which the 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 ring and the Silmarils kind of um they operate as a way of exposing mm-hmm. how that is a choice. Um and how no matter what your perspective is from which you're making that choice, it doesn't um mitigate you know the evilness of that choice if that makes sense mm-hmm. right? like boromir's we've talked about this in the past like his intentions are good they're just correct they just aren't based on the reality of like you know the ring is evil like you can't use it for good things yes um so i think what's yeah what's interesting about how the the ring works part of how the ring works is that it you know it makes that what tolkien's saying here in the voice of aragorn clear which is that you know good and evil are not blurry in mm-hmm. any sense of the word like it's clear that no matter what you're where you're coming from a good choice is only ever good and an evil choice is only ever evil mm-hmm. even um, if it's done for like in boromir's mind a good mm-hmm. reason right i mean gandalf says this too right in gladriel mm-hmm. you know we would take the ring for good reasons but the thing itself would still right. it would still you know be evil results so um yeah it's a very interesting kind of manichean <laughs> worldview but but it makes sense with what you know the whole thing that i think tolkien's setting out here with with history too mm-hmm. you know that's defined by choices and that in some level you can kind of predict mm-hmm. how those choices are playing out which is like a, a direct opposite of like what you know Tolstoy would say about history. Sure. Which is that you can't predict it because people are unpredictable. Right. And cause and effect is something you can't understand. But like here, even when like Gandalf expresses this idea that we don't know what Gollum's purpose is, mm-hmm. there's still the sense, right, that he knows on some level he has a part to play that's important. Right. Um, so there's a sense that in Tolkien anyway that you can kind of predict pretty reasonably how good and evil at least will influence events. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe I'm getting us too far afield, but I don't think so. But it is interesting how much this chapter really addresses this notion of like storytelling, reality, mm-hmm. history. And as you said, good and evil, like this is all about Tolkien kind of setting out his, 
Yeah. It's, his worldview. Yes. <laughs> in a lot of ways. Oddly enough in this, yeah. you know, meeting on the mound. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it might be because as you said, like Rohan is, it seems he's more sympathetic too. Mm-hmm. And then like with Faramir too, right? You said Faramir kind of gives us this melding of them. And that yeah. makes sense too, because he admires Faramir of all the men. Yes. In this, in this story. Right. I mean, Faramir very much is described as like a child of Gondor. Um, mm. You know, he, Tolkien like refers to him as, you know, he's like grave and tall and grave and, you know, whatever. He's very much a man of the West, but I think in some ways he expresses some of the sensibilities of, you know, Rohan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is why, you know, even though Tolkien obviously is not like, oh, he's influenced by Rohan. You know, I think I think there's some kernels there that Tolkien may have even mm-hmm. not. He kind of wrote his way into into Faramir. If, mm-hmm. You know, he he started writing him and like didn't really like the character, and then ended up realizing that he was the most <laughs> like him. Um, so he like found him as he wrote him, and I think I think there's something of Rohan in Faramir. Mm-hmm. Which maybe explains why at the end he ends up with Eowyn. Spoiler alert. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is, right? This kind of yeah, actual melding. Right, and is this, is this an even more perfect melding of like what men, mm-hmm. right, men can achieve as mm-hmm. opposed to like Aragorn marrying Arwen and Elf. Although right. at this point she's mortal, but still. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, these are questions for the future, but they're things, the king, yeah. <laughs> they're things to keep in mind. Yeah. Um, we've been at this for about an hour. Do we want yeah, to discuss just... the Urukai, or do we want to save that? Uh, it depends how much we have to say, I guess. Um, I guess I don't have like a ton to say. Yeah, I don't either, honestly. <laughs> so we can just we can do a little little yeah. bit on it, I suppose. Other than like you know, good job, good job, Pippin being clever. <laughs> Yeah, we do get a sense of Pippin's resourcefulness here. Uh, I do like that we finally have a chapter from the view of one of these two characters because yeah. we've actually not had much Mm-mm. viewpoints from either any of the hobbits at this Mm-mm. point. Um, so to kind of see the world through a little hobbit's eyes is refreshing. Yeah, I think that's why this book is my favorite too, is we have more of those characters. Like it just jumps around perspectively a lot more. Mm-hmm. Like the, the Fellowship, which is... Um, is it entirely Frodo? Well, it's not really Frodo. It's just sort of like... Well, it follows him, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. It follows Frodo. But he's like with everyone else. So you don't, right. have, to, you don't have to shift perspective. Mm-mm. But like he's the only one whose interior monologue we really get. Yeah. For the most part. For the most part. I guess we get glimpses of Sam occasionally. Mm-hmm. Um, and Aragorn in a few moments. But even Aragorn kind of has to verbalize what he's worrying about. Mm-hmm. So, so it is interesting that we have a much more um, colorful, oriented. yeah, 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 colorful cast of characters in this <laughs> book. Um, um, so yeah, like it's interesting to get Pippin's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he re- immediately regrets he regrets being on his trip. Yes, he's understandably, a piece, a piece of luggage, and now he's a piece of luggage for the orcs. <laughs> Um, we do have, I think the most interesting, I think, I think the most interesting part of this chapter is the fighting amongst the orcs. Yeah. 
Um, as we said, there are like maybe three groups here and they cannot decide what to do. <laughs> right. Um, Uglok is the leader of the Urukai, and he's like, we need to take the hobbits back to Saruman. Mm-hmm. And then there is another one. I forget what his is name it is. Grishnak? Grishnak. And Grishnak is like, no, they need to go to uh, Baradur, which they call Lug- Lugbers. Lugberg. Lugberg. Lugbers. Yeah. Lugbers. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then there are also maybe some like goblin-y orcs from the Misty Mountains who just want right. to like kill them and then go back to the Misty Mountains. I know. I know. They're... they're... <laughs> They're really just there for the vibes. Um, um, but yeah, there, there's this argument about who's the master, right? Is it Saruman mm-hmm. or the Great Eye? Yes. So we see this power struggle playing out here among the orcs. Right, among the orcs. Mm-hmm. Kind of like a nice foreshadowing of really uh, Tolkien showing us at sort of a more granular level of like there cannot be two. Right. Um, Highlanders. Right. <laughs> there is only one one Lord of the Ring, and he does not right. share power. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, yeah. And so really that, like, Saruman and Sauron are not allies. Yeah, they are opposed. definitely adversaries, which I think, um, you know, this sort of infighting and how it turns out is maybe a nice little, I wouldn't say mm-hmm. foreshadowing, but it certainly is a little um, sort of inside look at the fact that like there is when there's a power struggle, there is also a like breakdown of order and, um, Mm -hmm. and essentially like power in one of the groups yeah, and how this is going to impact Saruman. Right. In the future. (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah, it is. Not to take us back to an earlier chapter, but it is interesting when um, Aragorn's like picking through the bodies. I think it's after they've found Boromir. Mm-hmm. Uh, he finds these orcs that he can't identify. And we know that they're the Urukai, mm-hmm. but he says they have these strange markings. Mm-hmm. And he and Legolas have this debate about mm-hmm. where they come from. Um, and Gimli says, you know, so there's this S rune. Yes. Oh, yes. I know exactly um, which what you're is talking about. Interesting for a number of reasons. <laughs> um, so there's an S rune in white metal on. I think it's on a helmet. Mm-hmm. And Aragorn's like, "I've not seen this before. What do they mean?" Gimli says, "S is for Sauron. That's easy to read." Um, and Legolas, it's like, "No, you know, Sauron does not use elf runes." Um, mm-hmm. So it's so they eventually figure out that it's it's Sauron. He says, like, "You know, I guess the West is no longer safe." Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's interesting how the Urukai here appear. Uh, I, I know Tolkien doesn't like allegory, mm-hmm. but I mean, what do you think when you think of a white S rune? Yeah, it's like a Nazi. <laughs> yeah, it is right, and the West is no longer safe. Right. So it, it seems to be like, and we know Tolkien was upset with how like Nazism mm-hmm. used you know, imagery of the past and legends of the past mm-hmm. in ways that he saw as perverse. Right. Yes. Um, and one of those would be the Nazi obsession with runes. Mm-hmm. Um, they're big on runes, particularly they, they were, you know, they were obsessed <laughs> with that kind of shit. Um, so this seems, I don't know. It seems like a, like he's pulling on that. This like corruption, right. Cause they're elf runes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's this idea, you know, that it's being 
used for corrupt purposes. Yes. And like, you know, part of Legolas's reaction there, I think, is not just that like Gimli's incorrect in making the identification, but it's this idea that this thing has been, you know, used for corrupt purposes. And it's like, you know, what is Saruman gaining from using it? Like, why is he mm-hmm. using these elf symbols? Um, is it a way to kind of like legitimize him? Like, what is his purpose in using them? So it's, just, it's very interesting. It's a really interesting moment in the in the book. Yeah, it is. And then I think because immediately after that, too, I forget if it's Aragorn or Legolas who like adds they all, that Saruman or Sauron also does not allow his followers to yes. use his true name, which is right. very interesting. Right. They just call him like the great eye. Yeah, right. Which So this this later chapter kind of shows us the other side of that. Mm-hmm. This moment where they're trying to figure out who the Urukai are. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it is. I don't. It's really interesting to me that like Saruman is kind of being used as this, like the again the idea of like the West being corrupted by this figure. Yes. Whereas yeah. Mordor is consistently identified with the East is very interesting. Mm-hmm. And then of course you have Rohan smack dab in the middle. Yes, poor Rohan. Um, as like this idealized culture mm-hmm. in the book anyway right like it's yeah you know, it's clear that the narrative wants us to see them in you know in, in positive light mm-hmm. um but yeah returning to the orcs um right there's this we clearly understand that only one person can control the ring at a time mm-hmm. saruman's servants have the upper hand here but uh, you know, it, it reminds us to think of what Gandalf said, right? He, he suggests that Saruman can't actually use the ring either. Yeah. In the way that he thinks he can. Correct. Um, so there's, you know, he, he can maybe possess it, but he's not going to be able to use it. Like, will it just make him a thrall of Sauron ultimately? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like, he's just a tool of that. So, but yeah, I, I love the orc fighting. I do too. And there's the like fact not that they talk. Like right, there's like not a lot to say about it, but no. I also I'm with you. I love it. I think it's very funny. Um, I we you know there's some inf- yeah they, they, we learn a lot about Sauron here actually from like Grishnak. He talks about the Nazgul, right? The mm-hmm. nine. He says yes. they're not ready yet. Uh, he says you speak of what is deep beyond the reach of your muddy dreams. Look, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Nazgul, all that they make out. One day you'll wish you had not said that ape. He snarled fiercely. You ought to know they're an apple of the great eye, but the winged Nazgul, not yet, not yet. He won't let them show themselves across the great river yet. Not too soon. Therefore, the war and other purposes. I love that he says the apple of the great eye. That is so incredible. (laughs) Muddy dreams. Uh, Like, you know, there's this sense of superiority that even though like the Urukai are clearly the stronger and better fighters. Yes, they the are association like physically, with Sauron yeah. makes them more elevated than these these kind of brutish. Yes. You know, he calls them an ape, which is like all the connotations that come with that. You know, less a person, more a physical instrument. Yes. And like um, uh, earlier in the chapter like Grishnak says, uh, Saruman is a fool, a dirty, treacherous fool, but mm-hmm. the great eye is on him. So, mm-hmm. like, he knows that, you know, right. Saruman, if he tries to take the ring, Saruman's not going to be like, oh, good, my good buddy has it. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> we can share. It's not an equal you partnership. You get it Monday, Wednesday, Friday. 
<laughs> and no one gets it on Sunday. Um, I I also found it interesting. This is like a, just a tiny little note, but mm-hmm. you know, the the Urukai love that Saruman feeds them man flesh. Yes. Yeah, the hand that feeds. <laughs> um, the hand that gives us man's flesh to eat. Um, and then he first of all, <laughs> uh, first of all, Krishnak. <laughs> calls them muckrakers mm-hmm. which i'm obsessed with <laughs> just because it seems like so out of it's like apple apple of the great eye it seems yeah. so out of place like where did he learn the word muckrakers <laughs> there's a lot of muckraking journalists about in in uh, mordor. mordor um but then he also says it's orc flesh they eat i'll warrant so like it is interesting that these creatures who are like pretty grody all of them i mean orcs are gross <laughs> we can all agree um like have this code right still have sort of this strange code of like like cannibalism is still taboo mm-hmm. even among right. the orcs right which is interesting like some somehow is fascinating to me yeah they're like more disgrace than even the orcs who we you know have been told are perverted elves right um yeah they're even a step below uh yeah the constant reference to mud i mean I, we haven't seen how the uruk have been made yet Mm-mm. Did i we don't ever think see we ever in the see books? it in okay, the books the movie does it very graphically i mean clearly I drawing s- on these lines i think i don't but. i don't see it in the movie because i cannot watch that scene <laughs> <laughs> but that's what they're referring wretched. to right I don't it's know. Like if, that they're born I would out assume of the so that they're born of mud. Yeah. Yeah. So um, those are the muckrakers, I guess. Is like they're literally <laughs> pulled out of the earth by these. Yes. Yeah. Um, but um, I also like. I also just think you know, Tolkien's obviously not trying to humanize the orcs at all, no. or like make us like feel any sort of thing other than disgust for them. But I, I think in a way by giving us sort of a glimpse into their psyche he is he's even i mean we've talked about how his writing has improved Mm -hmm. i mean we're even getting a more you know nuanced vision of orcs which have been up until this point very one-dimensional yeah yeah and i think it's a clever way to also show us sauron's perspective without actually having to give us a section from his perspective because mm-hmm. I'm not sure how that would work. Yeah, and Saruman too. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Like Saruman is much more like he's all like reason, right? He has his Urukai mm-hmm. who are for for, you know, all intents and purposes pretty reasonable. They're like, you know, we've been told not to kill the hobbits or like despoil them at all. We just have to take them back, right? They're listening to their orders. Right. They're um, you know, pretty they're, they're very order oriented. Um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and I think that really kind of speaks to Saruman's, you know, mentality. He's evil, but he's very cunning and reasonable. And, you know, that's why he's able to become who he, like how powerful he is because he's sly and sneaky and has, mm-hmm. has set himself up through many, many years as being this sort of wise counselor. Right. Um, whereas obviously Sauron is like just an agent of evil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Right. There's no, there's no reason left. Um, He's just kind of, I wouldn't say totally chaotic, but much more like 
like Grishnok like willing to do whatever it takes mm-hmm. to get what he wants in whatever kind of like flamboyant way that might be. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, whereas, yeah, Saruman doesn't quite come off that way. Mm-mm. That's a good point. So I think, yeah, we see kind of the two sort of opposing uh, approaches to sort of their systems of power. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because, and even though like Grishnak, you know, he talks a big game, he knows all about the Nazgul and stuff. Like I get the sense that he's still pretty like terrified of all of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas sure. Uglak and the Urukai like don't seem like Saruman is not using fear to control no. his, right. um, his little minions here. Right. That's where they get their man flesh. That's right. That's maybe also orcs. <laughs> Potentially. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they're all swollen orc liquor. Mm-hmm. Which is also an interesting little detail that... Yeah, they're all drunk. Tolkien gave us. Right, like that part of the... Part of the way they're motivated is by drinking this nasty liquor that they give to Pippin. Yes. And Mary. They uh... give to both. Or just Pippin. I, I, Pippin's the one who drinks it and reacts to it. Anyway. Yeah. Um, and like it does, it does give him energy, but it's also terrible tasting. Right. So it's, you know, it's obvious, this obvious contrast to like Lembus, which we're told in the previous chapter, you know, keeps Legolas humming along. Um, this is more like a stimulant that's unnatural. Yes. Um, so they're on uppers. All the orcs are on uppers. I'm just about to say, is this uh, uppers? <laughs> The Nazis also love barbiturates, so that's right. They're all addicted. They were, <laughs> uh, so. Uh, but yeah, I I appreciate the different perspectives we're being given here. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. there's a lot more richness to this book already. Yeah, I agree. Um, just because we have this ability to jump around now and see mm-hmm. different parts of the world and um, get access to things that we. Because like the orcs before, we they were just sort of this undifferentiated mass of creatures, right. um, and now we're seeing them as right. They're, yeah, they are also nuanced, mm-hmm. which I think is uh, you know fair play, Tolkien. Like yeah, for sure. Good job. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, this is what I wanted more of when I said I wanted more like the prancy pony. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's more of like what's going on in the world. What are other people doing? Mm-hmm. Um, and we even get an explanation of why like Rohan's as empty as it is, which mm-hmm. I appreciated. Yeah. Um, because I always wonder that in the mo- movie and I don't think it's as clearly explained in the movie. No. Why like the land is totally empty. But here, you know, AMR says we brought everybody out because it was no longer safe to be. Yes. You know, hurting your horses. Horses. Um, over the plane so yeah yeah does, I think, that, does that do I think it that for us it. yeah and uh excited to be back uh recording again and working our way through this book yes i'm really excited to be back we uh so, thank you all for sticking with us through the long yeah, the long dark. break but uh the long dark of moria yeah uh, that was august but we are back and we will be posting regularly mm-hmm. from now on. Um, yeah, we're just absolutely chuffed to be reading <laughs> the two towers. Yeah. 
I'm really looking forward to the reading this book. So, but uh, but yeah, thank you all, and we will see you again soon. Bye bye. Bye.